0: In the year 1066, Edward the Confessor, the King of England dies, leaving a power vacuum in the Kingdom of England. The winner would go on to change the face of England for the next thousand years. Welcome to a brief history of England. Episode 1, Three-Way Battle Royale. Hello. In the first episode of this A Brief History of England podcast, we're going to be looking at the Norman Conquest of England. The year 1066 has been burned into the mind of every British school chap, and for good reason. The Norman invasion was perhaps the most important event in English history. Its ramifications for the English language and culture, and for its judicial, political, and cultural institutions, have been huge. In this episode, we're going to be looking back at the backstory, and the events of the invasion itself, and we'll be discussing the fallout next episode. So what was England like in the year 1065? Well, England in 1065 was not a unified country as we would think of one today. Whilst the idea of a nation-state is a relatively modern one, even in medieval terms, the Kingdom of England was barely held together at all. At the top of the political structure was the King, and in 1065 the King was King Edward, also known as Edward the Confessor. Now, the King was normally nominally elected by an advisory body called the 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 Watenagemot had its roots in the ancient Germanic traditions or the Volkmut. But by 1065, it was essentially a committee of ecclesiastical and secular leaders, mostly earls, thanes, bishops, and archbishops, that advised the king on day-to-day affairs. As I mentioned before, they had the, they had the power to elect the king. But funnily enough, It was always the richest and most powerful candidates that ended up in power, regardless of ability. Uh, The Victorian historians often liked to romanticise the Watenagemot and imbue it with a sense of democratic purpose. But the assembly was little more than a rubber-stamping committee. Under the king were the earls, who controlled earldoms, which were made up of a number of shires. Some of the weaker earls only had one shire, but only, but more powerful earls controlled many. The richest and most powerful earl was the Earl of Wessex, and his name was Harold Godwinson. Harold had at one time been living in exile, when his father, Godwin, had a falling out with the king. Such was the power and influence of Godwin, that is that he essentially forced Edward to let him back into the country under the threat of a civil war, a war that most historians would agree Godwin would have won. Godwin dies, however, in ten fifty three and Harold succeeds him and By the end of the ten fifties, the Godwin family was in control of all of England except for Mercia and the king's own lands, and at the top of this most powerful almost Mafia-type family, sat Don Harold. The Godwins, in mid-11th century England, were like the Rockefellers and the Kennedys combined. Not only was Harold the de facto most powerful man in the country, he was also, according to the chronicler Alderic Vitalis, an extremely handsome, gregarious, and tall, strong man, but has also been described as dishonourable. When in 1065 his brother Tostig caused controversy by doubling the taxes in his earldom of Northumbria, Harold removed his own brother and replaced him with a man loyal to him, called Morcar. Tostig fled the court of Harald and Edward into the court of a certain Norwegian king by the name of Harald Hardrada. Harold Hardrada was the consummate viking he had spent his early life in exile where he had been a mercenary in the service of the kievian princes and the byzantine empire emperor and when he returned he continued his warlike tendencies and sought to invade denmark this invasion went nowhere and when harold returned to norway he took his frustrations out on the peasants whom he accused of withholding taxes It is easy to see where he got his name Hardrada from. Hardrada meaning hard ruler. Harold was something of an absolutist, and a tyrant, but to the Viking nobility these qualities were not necessarily detrimental. When Tostig Godwinson arrived in Harold's court, Harold saw the opportunity to regain his people's lost lands in England. And set about preparing an invasion fleet. The third claimant for the throne was William, Duke of Normandy, also known as William the Bastard. William was the only son of Robert, the Duke of Normandy, and a woman named Herlever. Herlever was a commoner, and her father, William's grandfather, a tanner, although he may have been a tailor or even a member of the burgher class, but either way, or commoner. William's heritage was deeply embarrassing for him, because as because a tanner was one of the least glamorous professions there were, since the method of making leather back then involved copious amounts of cow piss. So these people absolutely stank, even by medieval standards. They were surrounded all day by the stench of urine, feces and decaying flesh Naturally, they were at the outskirts of town life, both literally and metaphorically. The idea that the Duke could trace his lineage directly back to such unglamorous origins gave William a sort of complex. During his early reign, when his duchy was embroiled in civil war, William was besieging the town of Alisson in southern Normandy. When defenders started hanging out sheets of leather and furs on the town walls and started jeering at him, calling him a leather tanner. So, what did William do when he broke down the gates and occupied the town? Why, he had their hands cut off. The fact that William's early reign was so steeped in personal challenges to his legitimacy and heritage made William extremely intolerant of rebellion, and he took it as a personal slight. Against him and his dear mother. William was fairly tall at five foot ten inches, although that's quite average by modern standards. He was also burly, husky, and incredibly strong. During the crisis in 1051, when the Godwin family were exiled, Edward appears to have offered the throne to William. And even when the Godwins returned, Edward tried to slow their growing dominance by appointing prominent Normans to positions of power. For William, this was a golden opportunity. And according to Norman sources, one that was underwritten by events in 1064, when Harold, supposedly, took part in a William, took part in a war William was fighting in Brittany. According to Norman sources, Harold promised to support William's claim to the throne. So here we are. We have the celibate king Edward the Confessor, and three men who desire the throne of England. There was Don Harold Godwin, the rich and powerful Earl of Wessex. Harold, with an A, the hard-ruling Viking king, set on conquering something before he died. And William, the bastard Duke of Normandy ambitious, and quick to anger, with a massive chip on his shoulder. In January 1066, Edward dies from a stroke. The exile and downfall of Tostig Godwinson, who was one of his favourites, may have been one of the main causes of stress that led to his death, but this is really speculation. Harold Godwinson moves fast, and he secures the support of the Gemot, not a hard thing for a man in his position, and had himself crowned king the day after Edward's death. William, naturally, is furious and prepares an invasion fleet. He sees Harold's actions as a breach of oath and an act of rebellion against him, the rightful king. Remember, William is not too fond of rebels. Harold Hardrada also makes preparations to invade. And sees the time to strike in August. Tostig is sent south to raid along the south coast of England, where Harold's army is waiting for William's invasion. Meanwhile, Harold Hardrada lands in the north, in Yorkshire, where he does what Vikings do best, and pillages and loots the surrounding countryside. Eventually, he meets back up with Tostig, and the two run amok around Northern England. However, Harold Hardrada did not take into account the Anglo Saxon levy system. Under this system, called the feud, all free men were expected to be at the beck and call of their liege whenever he required their services in battle. They maintained their own weapons and armor and could be called at a moment's notice. This system had originally been introduced by the old King of Wessex, before the unification of England as a single country, Alfred the Great. It was designed to help the Saxons defend against Viking incursions, and in the hands of a competent general was extremely effective. So Harold Godwinson disbands his army in the south, marches north with his retainers, and raises a new army in the north, Harold had been doing this back when he was the Earl of Wessex. Now he was the king, it was impossible to refuse his call to arms. He managed to conjure up 15,000 troops and marched to intercept the Viking forces. Harold Hardrada, however, had made a mistake. He hadn't expected such an army at all, and had let his men raid far from their longboats. And so it was, on an unseasonably warm late September day, when Harold Hardrada's men had left their armour on the boats because it was too hot, that Harold Godwinson's army caught up with them at a river crossing we know today as Stanford Bridge. Hardrada and Tostig's army was lazing about, waiting for supplies, when Harold Godwinson's army appeared. Hardrada's troops tried to hurry back across to the other side of the river. But Godwinson's army caught his rear guard unprepared and destroyed him. It would have been the end for the Vikings if it weren't for a lone warrior standing on the narrow bridge, single handedly stopping the English advance. The English couldn't get close to this one, So, after a while, a couple of enterprising soldiers floated a small boat underneath the bridge and thrust spears through the holes, stabbing the warrior in that most sensitive of areas between his testicles and his anus. Taint easy being a Viking warrior. The English eventually managed to cross the river, but the delay had allowed the Vikings to reorganize and form a shield wall. Fans of ancient history may be familiar with the Greek fangs, where the soldiers formed a tight mass of spear points. Aimed at making a frontal assault almost impossible. The shield wall was similar in that regard, and it involved soldiers linking their shields together to make an impenetrable wall of wood and metal that was difficult to face head on. The English arrived on the far bank and did the same. These two shield walls drew closer and closer together until they smashed into one another. Normally, Having these two defensive formations move into one another resulted in a sort of stalemate. But on this occasion, because the Vikings had left their armour on the boats, the result was a bloodbath. Tostig is killed and Hardrada gets an arrow in the neck and dies shortly after himself. There were a few reinforcements of properly armoured Vikings later in the battle, but it was a case of too little, too late. The Vikings break up and start retreating. The English likewise break formation and chase after them, killing most of the routing Vikings. The result devastated the Vikings, and with their leaders and most of their forces dead, the survivors fled back to their longboats. Never again would the Northmen play a central role in English history. Harold now stood victorious. He had defeated one claimant to the throne. All that was left was William. Duke of Normandy. William, however, was having a few troubles getting his invasion off the ground. The weather had not been kind to William. The English Channel was not normally known as one of the most peaceful bodies of water, but during the autumn of 1066, exceptionally poor weather in the Channel forced William to delay. William was also waiting for permission from a certain Anselmo di Baggio, also known as Pope Alexander II. However, By the time preparations were complete, William had still not received the Pope's blessing. Nevertheless, William set out for England, landed in Sussex, and set up a base of operations at Hastings. Harold had by this point marched down south and set up in London, where he raised a new, much larger army to deal with William. He marched on Hastings, hoping to surprise William, but his presence was given away by William's spies, and William took his army and rushed out to meet him. The two armies met in a plain outside of Hastings, and Harold's army set up in a defensive position on the top of a gentle hill. Harold's army consisted almost entirely of infantry, whereas William preferred a combined arms approach. William had archers, infantry, and most importantly, a few hundred mounted knights. These knights were William's ace in the hole. They were perfect against soldiers, spread out on flat ground, but to charge them up a hill to run headlong into a wall of iron and wood would be a waste, a very expensive and very bloody waste. William's army engaged cowards, and the infantry started to advance up the hill to where the Beardling were waiting for. However, they could barely make a dent into the shield wall and they themselves suffered large casualties. What happened next is uncertain. Either William's Breton mercenaries rout, or William himself feigns a false retreat. Either way, just as happened at Stamford Bridge, Harold's army chases after the retreating Norman forces. William's previously useless knights suddenly become extremely valuable, and William orders them to charge at the Saxons, who are suddenly left without the defence of their shield wall? The charge is devastating, and William rushes the rest of his army forward, seizing the opportunity to crush the English army. In the confusion, Harold is killed, as depicted in the Bayer Tapestry, as either having been trampled under a horse's hooves, or shot in the eye with an arrow. The Saxon army retreats, and William is victorious. In one fell swoop, he has killed the King of England and destroyed the fighting potential of the English in the South. Flush with victory, he continues on to London, and despite being stalled at Southwark, he finally enters the city and crowns himself King of England on Christmas Day 1066. Now, let's take a quick step back and look at what has just happened. William was the bastard son of a duke a position that normally would have limited him to a life as a baron or another minor noble. But now, he was the sovereign ruler of a kingdom. It's an amazing rise in fortune for him. And that said, there are still two problems. Firstly, how to run the kingdom. And secondly, what to do with the English noblemen still around. The first we'll come into next time. But for now, let's take a quick look at how William tackles the second problem. Before William crowned himself king, however, the Witanagemot had hastily elected the teenage nephew of Edward Confessor, Edgar the Eighthling, Eighthling meaning of type of prince or royal, as king. Although William had been given the young prince as a ransom by the remaining members of the Witanagemot, in ten sixty eight he escaped after inciting rebellion amongst some of the Saxon nobles still in power. Most of the Saxon nobility, especially those associated with the Godwin family, had fled the country to Ireland and Scotland, and even to Scandinavia, Russia, and the Byzantine Empire, where, like Harold Hardrada before them, they joined the venerable Varangian Guard, The emperor's elite troops, mostly made up of northern European mercenaries; those that did stay, such as Morcar, the Earl of Northumbria, who, if you remember, replaced Tostig, and Eadric the Wild, who operated out of Hereford and Wales, frequently rose up in rebellion against William. From the time of the conquest until about 1070, the remaining English nobles resisted William time and again, until William finally had had enough. In a move that shocked even the most obsequious of contemporary sources, William marched north and lay waste to northern England. As Alderic Vitalis, whose chronicle I mentioned earlier, puts it on page 28 of his The Ecclesiastical History of England and Normandy, his camps were scattered over the surface of a hundred miles. Numbers of the insurgents fell beneath his vengeful sword. He levelled their places of shelter to the ground, wasted their lands, and burnt their dwellings with all they contained. Never did William commit so much cruelty. To his lasting disgrace, he yielded to his worst impulse, and set no bounds to his fury, condemning the innocent and the guilty to a common fate. In the fullness of his wrath, he ordered the corn and cattle with the implements of husbandry and every sort of provisions to be collected in heaps and set on the fire until the whole was consumed and thus destroyed at once all that could serve for the support of life in the whole country lying beyond the Humber. There followed, consequently, so great a scarcity in England in the ensuing years, and a severe famine involved the innocent and unarmed population in so much misery, that in a Christian nation, more than a hundred thousand souls of both sexes and all ages perished of want. On many occasions in the course of the present history, I have been free to extol William according to his merits. But I dare not commend him for an act which levelled the bad and the good together in one common ruin by the infliction of a consuming famine. For when I see that innocent children, youths in the prime of their age, and grey-haired, grey-headed old men perish from hunger, I am more disposed to pity the sorrows and sufferings of the wretched people than to undertake the hopeless task of screening one whose guilt of such whole-scale massacres by lying flatteries. I assert, moreover, that such barbarous homicide could not pass unpunished. What Alderic is talking about is an event known as the Harrying of the North. In case you didn't catch it, it involved William. And his army, raising and slaughtering whole villages of innocent people, those villages that he didn't slaughter outright, he burnt to the ground, destroyed the livestock and crops, and condemned the people to a slower death by starvation during the bitter winter during the bitter winter months. this took place. This famine was so severe that it lasted nine years. Over a 100,000 people died, and considering the population of England as a whole was only 1 to 2 million people, William was directly responsible for the deaths of between 5 and 10% of his country's population. William had killed before, but this was different. This was genocide. And with that and a happy note, we'll leave it there for now. Next episode, we'll be looking at William's Ring, and a single book that meant the end of the world.